it was kind of a Darwinian process. If more than one reader or editor that I respected said, this needs to go, then as painful as it was to cut something out, listen to them. Some of the things I kept in, even if others didn't agree because I thought it was important, but I did try to make it so the book communicated the message I wanted to. It was honest. Structure can help if you're writing about your life. It sort of gives you something to frame the story around, but the important thing is to just start writing because I think we can get too caught up on preparing and not enough on just doing, getting it down. Is that much of a, is that, that's not much of a change for you, right? My name is Kerry Kite. I used to load bombs in the Air Force, and now I'm a writer, a filmmaker, and an entrepreneur. Through using the post-9-11 GI Bill to go to college, working hourly jobs to pay the bills, and freelancing my way into a career, I've studied what it takes to successfully transition from service to civilian. And that study has become a conversation. On this podcast, I speak to other veterans, successful artists and entrepreneurs about their transition, what they did well, where they failed, what they learned, and most importantly, how they applied their skills. Episode 82 features Rob Henderson, an Air Force veteran, the person who coined the term luxury beliefs, and the author of Troubled, a memoir of foster care, family, and social class. He is a columnist for the Free Press, a founding faculty fellow at the University of Austin, and an instructor for Peterson Academy. Welcome. This is Veteran Made. Cool. Well, listen, I, let's let's jump right into it. We are we are recording. Uh, Rob Henderson, welcome back to Veteran Made. Yeah. Hey, Kerry. Great to be here. Thanks, man. Um, super stoked to have you to have you back. It's fun to start doing repeat guests. Uh, I've done one repeat guest. Nate Boyer came on again uh, at the end of last year, and um, and so really excited to have you back. Excited to have you back on video. We were joking before. <laughs> yeah. We didn't have video last time because I was in a hotel room with with shitty internet, but um, but here we are. So for for those who who might not know who you are, um, if you could give us just a, a brief primer on um, on who Rob Henderson is and what he's doing, where and when he served, and then I'll I'll jump into some some specific questions from there. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Um, well, let's see. I just finished up a uh, PhD. Well, this is, this is a little over a year ago. Um, I received a PhD from the University of Cambridge. So that's why I'm currently living in England. Um, I arrived here a few years ago to do the PhD, but now I'm just here on a visa. But I um, you know, studied here psychology. Before this, I received a, a bachelor's degree in psychology from, from Yale, where I studied, uh, used the GI Bill. And then, um, you know, backing way, way up, you know, I wrote this book, uh, my book, you know, it's, it's a memoir called Troubled, and it sort of documents my experiences growing up in foster homes in Los Angeles, um, living just through a lot of disorder and chaos in my early life, uh, later uh, enlisted in the military. And, you know, there were some setbacks and some hiccups along the way, but then eventually ended up um, you know, going to college and um, sort of making this career for myself, you know, Getting, getting us, you know, somewhat of a large following on Twitter, which is, I guess, we're supposed to call it X now, and Substack, and you know, writing a newsletter, uh, building a platform, and yeah, building a you know, a pretty, pretty decent sized readership. Where now my uh, weekly newsletters are sent out to fifty thousand subscribers, um, and yeah, this book is uh, uh, set to be released soon. It's received you know, blurbs and praise from. Um, you know, people across the political spectrum, including Jordan Peterson and many others. Um, but my, yeah, my military experience, it was important to me. And I, I dedicate a couple of chapters to it in the book because it was so critical and sort of redirecting my life trajectory. Um, I enlisted right out of high school when I was 17, you know, went through basic training. This was the Air Force, uh, uh, Blackland Air Force Base, Texas. 
um, tech school at Keesler Air Force Base in Mississippi, then back to Texas at Shepard, first duty station at what was then called McCord Air Force Base in 2008, but it um, uh, merged with uh, uh, Fort Lewis. So now it's Joint Base Lewis-McCord. And after that, I uh, was stationed at Ramstein uh, in Germany. And in the interim, I did a couple of deployments, one in uh, Qatar uh, at uh, Al-Udid, and then the other at uh, at Manas in Kyrgyzstan, and yeah, that's uh, that's the kind of the, the the short version. But I was I was in for eight years. I did two four year enlistments. I love it. Yeah, thank, thanks for that. Um, I'm one of the fifty thousand subscribers, and and we'll obviously link out to it again in the show notes as well as the opportunity to purchase purchase the book. Highly encourage everybody to to uh, follow you on on Twitter and um, I'm going to call it Twitter till they tell me to till they, till they, till they, till they remove it yeah, from yeah, yeah. Uh, follow you on Twitter and 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 follow you on Substack um, I've, you know obviously been a fan for a long time and 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 you know discovered you through that Jordan Peterson Barry Weiss Steven Pinker kind of whole um, mm. you know uh, sphere of people and I actually remember the first time I had you on I remember reaching out I was listening to to um, uh, episode of, of the podcast you did with, with Jordan Peterson. And then I, you, you all kind of like skipped over the military stuff, which I actually found fascinating. I'm, I'm surprised that he didn't try to dig a little deeper. And then when you went on Barry's show, the same thing, she kind of talked a little bit more about it with you. Um, but then it was kind of skipped over. And so I, I saw my strategic in there to be like, Hey man, I'm sure not a lot of people talk to you about the military. So, um, um, yeah. I'm, I'm glad that we, that we got one episode out of the way and, and now we can dig into to troubled, which, um, which I've read and loved. And, and again, we'll, we will, uh, we'll, we'll link it out for folks to buy. Um, I, would you mind if I read a short passage from it just to kind of get us going and, and kick us off? Yeah. Um, cool. So this is Rob writing, I've come to believe that upward social mobility shouldn't be our priority as a society. Rather, upward mobility should be the side effect of far more important things, family, stability, and emotional security for children. Even if upward mobility were the primary goal, a safe and secure family would help achieve it more than anything else. Conventional badges of success do not repair the effects of a volatile upbringing. Um, and you that's very, very early in the book and it sets it up really well. Um, and there, there's multiple through lines of the book, but one of the ones that I, I want to focus a little bit here on in our conversation is your search for stability. Um, and, and you kind of ended up finding some of that uh, stability in in the military. Can you talk a little bit about your your decision to to transition into the military from um, from civilian life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, by the time I was 17, um, you know, I'd lived in foster homes, I was adopted, but there were divorces and separations and all of this sort of family drama, family tragedies, so many things that happened by the time I reached my senior year of high school. Um, you know, your yeah, your and your instincts were right there that like so few people, you know, like so few people even have any contact with the military. They may have a family member or something, but it's just a, a vanishingly small number of people have served or know anyone who's served. And you've probably, you're probably familiar with a lot of the the, the recent figures uh, and the headlines about like recruitment shortfalls. And it's just fewer and fewer people, man, um, who are even aware of this segment of society. But for me, you know, I was growing up in kind of a working class blue collar area of Northern California in the mid 2000s, you know, shortly after, so this is 2007. So, you know, not far from 9-11, 
two wars going on. There was just a lot of going on in the country. The military was like more salient in people's minds, more people were thinking about it. And so, you know, I, I left home when I was 16. I moved in with my friend and his dad and his brother uh, for my senior year. And his, so my friend's dad, who we lived with, I mean, he was a private investigator. He wasn't home a lot, but you know, he'd kind of sit us down sometimes and he talked to us and he would tell me, um, you know, about his experiences. So he had been in the Air Force, I think I want to say in like the 70s or maybe the early 80s. Uh, and he said that he enjoyed the experience. And then uh, one of my history teachers uh, was also in the Air Force. And so it was just, pure, you know, complete coincidence that both of these sort of older male adult figures in my life when I was a teenager uh, had been Air Force vets. And they were like, yeah, you know, this could be a good option for you. My history teacher, you know, he showed me a picture of himself in his uniform. Uh, he pulled it up on his computer and I was like, oh, that looks kind of cool. And um, he told me, um, you know, he could kind of tell that I was a you know, bright, curious kid, but I was just unfocused. I barely graduated high school. I graduated with a like 2.2 2. 2 GPA, like a C minus average, essentially. Um, bottom third of my class just was not really in a position to go to college either sort of in terms of my maturity or my academic uh, inclinations or financially just was not in a place to go to college. So between these two guys, you know, encouraging me, it became a serious possibility in my mind. And, you know, there was some family drama and there was other things going on to the point where there was really nowhere I could go after I graduated from high school, I realized. Um, and so it was kind of a half impulsive, half semi thought through, you know, it wasn't a very good plan, but it was like, I don't know if the military is the right decision at right now, but I know that the path I'm on is the wrong one. Um, you know, I was working, I was a bad boy at a grocery store making minimum wage. I was just struggling to make ends meet, uh, you know, and so, you know, I knew at the very least I wasn't going to be poor or at least very poor uh, if I enlisted. And so, you know, I, I signed up to take the ASVAB and you know, I remember when I signed up to take it, it was um, scheduled for 1030 in the morning at this testing center. And so I knew I could skip school that day because I had a valid excuse. And so the night before, my friends and I just like drank Four loco and played Xbox. And I didn't, I just, yeah, I just didn't even think to study. It just wasn't on my radar. I just was like, oh, I'm taking this test. You know, we'll see how it goes. And ended up doing pretty well on it. And my recruiter was like, yeah, you should, you know, you, you qualify for, you know, all the jobs we have available. And so went off to MEPS. I did the the debt program. Um, this was, yeah, I was, I was still in high school, did MEPS, debt program, the whole thing. And yeah, shipped out that summer. Um, I was still 17. I had to have my my adoptive mom sign a, one of the, like a permission slip. That's <laughs> basically what it amounted to was because I was underage. Um, and I was the youngest guy in my basic training flight. Um, and the oldest guy, I think he was 27 and I was, I was, you know, the youngest uh, at age 17 and yeah, just, that was probably the first and, and maybe even to this day, the best decision I ever made, honestly, because it completely turned my life around and put me on a different trajectory. The, the town I grew up in, the kinds of friends I had around me, the people I had around me, um, you know, just to give a sense of, you know, what you know, what, what the typical outcome was like for people where I grew up. So I had five close friends growing up in high school. So it was a group of six of us. Um, you know, it was me raised in foster homes. Two of my other friends were raised by single moms. One was raised by a single dad. Another was raised by his grandmother because his, 
dad was a, uh, in prison and his mom was addicted to drugs. And, you know, that was like kind of, you know, that's the, that story, those sort of kinds of backgrounds are becoming increasingly common in more sort of blue collar, lower income areas all across the country now. Um, and it was like that in, in where I grew up in California. And so, um, you know, where did my friends end up? I sort of dwell quite a bit on the lives of my friends in my book too, because I didn't want this story to be just about me and, oh, look at this guy who made a successful life for himself. And, you know, I wanted to also tell the story of what is the more common outcome for people who grew up the way that I did. So two friends uh, went to prison. I had one friend who was shot to death. Um, you know, my other friends kind of working menial jobs, you know, they're doing okay. I had one friend who joined the military and he's actually the one who's doing the best right now was the, the guy who joined the military, which I think just sort of speaks to how it can help to change people's lives. But the rest of them, they're just not doing very well. Um, and that could have easily been where I wound up if I had just stayed in that town and sort of made the same kinds of mistakes that I was already making at age 17. So yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's sort of the snapshot of, of that point. And then, yeah, the, 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 the excerpt you read about upward social mobility, I mean, you know, I had a pretty fortunate trajectory um, but, you know, it, it wasn't until I started to really experience, you know, a, a decent level of success that I realized, like, you know, our whole idea about mobility and success is it's flawed. I mean, it's, you know, whatever, going to college and, you know, serving in the military and, you know, having a, a good career, like it's better than not having those things, but it doesn't make up for, you know, having extremely difficult early life, you know, uh, even if every single kid who comes from chaos and disorder and, and, and early life difficulties, even if every single one of them, you know, goes, goes on to go to college and get a nice high paying white collar job. And, you know, on paper, you know, their resume looks good, but that doesn't necessarily heal the wounds or the scars from their early life of just extreme neglect or, you know, having a very tumultuous early life. And the thing is, like, you know, even if even if a kid doesn't go on to attain, you know, astounding levels of success, I still think it's important to pay attention to the kinds of environments kids are raised in, to think more about the breakdown of the family in the U.S., of what the experiences of, of kids are like. You know, if a kid is, you know, having difficulties early in their life, maybe experiencing neglect or their parents aren't, you know, sort of giving them the, the amount of attention or adequate care, you know, the kid isn't going to be thinking, oh, this is going to affect my future odds of going to college. It's going to affect my, it's going to increase my chances of being incarcerated later. Like the kid isn't thinking about it. the kid is just thinking like, you know, I wish I had my dad around or I wish my mom would pay more attention to me or I wish I had, you know, someone sort of checking in on me. Um, and so we could be thinking about those things too, because that what was what was on my mind when I was a kid growing up in the foster homes. And that was what was on my friends' minds when they were living in similarly unpromising circumstances. Um, and so, you know, it's just uh, something else we, sh we should be thinking about in addition to questions around mobility and economics and inequality, all of those things are important, of course, but we could also be thinking about, you know, what's going on uh, in kids and their home lives and their family lives I mean, we're bifurcating in the country, I think, overall, where sort of middle, upper middle, upper class families in the U.S., you know, they're becoming like helicopter parents 
where they're probably overindulging in many cases, not every case, but in many cases where they're sort of monitoring their kids a little too closely and not letting them uh, have a little bit of freedom to make mistakes and, you know, be a little bit reckless within certain bounds. And then on the other end of society in the sort of more poor and working class areas of the country, it's like, you know, whatever the opposite of helicopter parenting is just like neglect or uh, kids raising themselves or parents just like kind of checked out or maybe strung out on opioids or drugs or, you know, having a string of different, uh, you know, uh, boyfriends or, or multiple divorces. I mean, that friend that I mentioned before that I lived with my senior year of high school, I lived with him and his dad and his dad had been married and divorced five times uh, before my friend graduated from high school. Like that's kind of common. I mean, you know, just sort of breakdown of the family, breakdown of marriage. And, you know, that's sort of what's happening on the other, the other end of society that, um, you know, the kind of educated public, the, the, the middle class and upper middle class, they're not really paying much attention to. So I use the book as a way to sort of highlight what's happening um, in these communities too. Yeah. It's so fascinating. I was, I was, I'm, I'm a, I'm a dad. My, my daughter's, you know, by the time this comes out, she's four. Um, and last summer we had, you know, we, my wife and I, my wife and I both come from divorce. Um, you know, my, my parents have been married and divorced multiple times to, you know, multiple, multiple partners and same on her side. Um, and so it, it's something that, that we've talked about. I mean, we've known each other since we were 13. So we've actually talked a lot about it. Um, mm. our, you know, the majority of our lives, cause we've known each other longer than we haven't. Um, but obviously as we were, we were dating in earnest and engaged and then married, like we, we talked a lot about it and still talk a lot about it. And when we, um, when our daughter was born, um, we're both working parents, right. And so it was COVID. And so she was at home with us, um, all year for her first year of life. So she would be with me half the day, uh, you know, getting fed uh, while, while I'm on Zooms and working and doing stuff. And then she'd be in the little playpen behind me um, as I worked in the basement. And my wife had the same setup at the kitchen table um, upstairs. Uh, so she would feed her and she would play in there and we would just kind of rotate back and forth. And I mean, looking back, it was an incredible year. And, but as, as the world started to open back up, we had discussions about, all right, well, what are we going to do? What kind of daycare do we want? You know, do we want, how early do we want her to go to preschool? Do we want Montessori? Do we want kind of all of these things? And, and us being educated people that we are and thoughtful people that we are, we're like, well, we want her to, to be educated and we want her to, to stay ahead of the curve and we want her to get into Montessori if we can. And so she was in a nice, nice mom and pop one in New York where we lived there. And then we moved to, um, to Richmond and, and we found a Montessori, we got her into the Montessori and, um, you know, it ended up not being a great experience for her or, or for us, but we kept holding on to it because we were like, man, you know, we, we, this is the right move. Like she, she needs to have this kind of structure and, and, you know, all the data that supports Montessori and the model and, and the independence, but the, but the, the structure and all these different things. Right. And, and I am not, I am not uh, blanket cr criticizing the Montessori model, uh, nor, nor am I blanket criticizing this particular institution. Um, but we ended up having this kind of come to Jesus moment where we were like, what do we want for our child? And is do we want the right thing for our child? And we, we realized once we pulled her out, we made the decision to pull her out um, and put her back into more of a mom, mom and pop style kind of preschool daycare community based thing. Yeah, I mean, her, like she just changed overnight, like back into the kid that she is. And she was, was happy and laughing. And we saw some of the, the um, 
you know, she, it's not like she lost out on the opportunity to to grow as as a thinker, you know, as an operator, as a you know three four year old. But we realized, like, holy shit, our kid, our kid needs what our kid needs, and our kid just needs us to be around and to be involved in her life, to love her, to laugh, to play. Um, you know, obviously the Jordan Peterson sort of, uh, uh, you know, um, influence, like we teach her to negotiate, right? Like we have conversations with her and she'll want something. And like right now her thing is, is, uh, she wants to wear these princess dresses and it's like, cool, that's where you can wear that at home and on the weekends, but you can't wear it to school. And if for no other reason, just to teach her to 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 negotiate through life and figure out these things that she wants. And the, the last six months of us just being together and like being a family and the three of us figuring out just how to be with each other. Like to me, as, especially as I was reading your, your book in prep for this, I'm like, man, that's what she needs. That's enough. Like, that's it. Right. Like the rest will come as it, as it comes through the, uh, a stable home that she, that she grows up in. But this kind of just the three of us being together and, and really being there for each other is something that, um, you know, stood out in stark contrast for me as I was, as I was reading about your upbringing. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's important, I think, like, you know, having those interactions and not, I mean, I think a lot of parents, especially more sort of educated parents who, you know, are understandably focused on their kids, positioning their kids to be successful later in life. It becomes this sort of, you know, this kind of uh, almost like this, I don't know, mathematical, like, okay, do X and this kid's going to turn out Y. So you need to get them in this school and this program and this thing. And really, I think it's, you know, if, if a kid's going to be successful, if they're academically inclined, all those, yeah, like those things will come later and those sort of patterns and talents and inclinations will emerge. But especially the first few years of life, you know, what the kid really needs, yeah, is just sort of care and nurturance interaction with the parents just sort of being close by and feeling cared for and those kinds of things and so i mean it's yeah it's uh we could sort of focus more on what's going on with 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 children rather than whatever the sort of priorities and concerns of adults are i mean i quote um early on in the book in the preface uh the yale sociologist and physician nicholas christakis um who's you know he is one of the the more sort of leading lights uh, at Yale, which is increasingly become a sort of embarrassment of an institution, which you know, <laughs> I could go on a whole rant about what happened to, to Yale and all the all these universities. But Nicholas Christakis is one of the good ones. And he has this line in one of his books where he says that, um, you know, basically every single child care innovation in the United States has prioritized the concerns of adults and what is best for children has always been secondary at best, something along those lines, where anytime we think, you know, what should we do about, you know, childcare? What, do we, what should we do about, you know, child uh, rearing and mobility and all these things? It's always sort of, what do adults think is best? What do we think about success? How do we sort of set our kids up to do the things that we want them to do? But there's not a lot of thought or attention paid to, you know, what does the kid want? What's good for them? And like, you know, what does the kid want? Not in the sense of like, give them ice cream or candy or something, but what does the kid want in terms of like, you know, does does the kid want to be closer to their parents? You know, do they want to be around their their you know their mother and their father? Do you know what is it that would be sort of ideal from their perspective? Well, they, yeah, I mean, it's like, do they want like well, my my daughter is very rambunctious and high energy and very disagreeable, uh, which I love, and it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna serve her well in in life. 
Um, but she's she wants to run. She wants to dance. She wants to get up and jump. So what do we do? We allow her to do those things and we kind of help her figure out how best to do those things. The, the, the way she's going to be the best version of herself is if I'm the best version of myself and my wife is the best version of herself and then we're the best versions of us together. And that includes the imperfections that our daughter witnesses daily, right? She witnesses mm-hmm. us having conversations where we disagree or conversations where we make mistakes or, you know, she's on this kick right now. If we say the word hate, she's like, we don't say hate. And we're like, yeah, no, that's true. You don't say hate. We do say it sometimes when we're describing it correctly, but you don't know that. And she just like, she's so confused, but we just, we just talk to her and we talk to each other. And like, it's, you know, it, it's, she's just getting the best, the, the best possible version that she, that she can get in any given moment. And, and that, that was just, I don't know, a big, a big shift for me within the last six months as a, as a dad. And then really crystallized as I was, as I was reading the book, uh, you know, during that same time period in, in prep for this. And it was just, it was, it was kind of, um, it, it, I don't know, it, it, it put, it put me at ease, I guess, in, in a way. And I'm not sure what other feedback you've gotten from that section of the book, the early sections of the book, but, um, I, I know that it was obviously painful for you to go through and, um, and painful to write maybe, which I want to talk about next, but, but it, it did put me at ease. And, and I'd be curious if, if others have told you that. So in terms of the writing of, of the book, um, I've got, I've got a few questions on, on process and content and just kind of different things. So, I mean, when did the idea come for you to, to write the book? Um, how difficult was it for you to get started just from like a, Hey, there's nothing on these pages and I'm going to fill it with, with words. And then, and then how difficult was it for you to go through the, the content of your life and, and the memories and, and these things and, um, and, and really go through that process? Yeah, it was, it was hard, man. I mean, so the book was kind of five, yeah, about five years in the making and yeah, I mean, I remember initially I was paralyzed when I, so I signed the contract um, to write the book in early 2020. And I was, yeah, it was just completely, as soon as I signed it and realized what I had gotten myself into, I became sort of frozen. Like, oh man, I like, what did I just do? I have to write a book. Like, you know, I've, I've written articles, I've written essays, I've written newsletter posts, you know, 800 words here, maybe 1500 words there. But the idea of writing 80,000 words into book, it just, the project just seemed too daunting. Um, and so for, you know, about three months passed and I was, I just hadn't written anything down and had a little bit of that writer's block. And then, you know, I spoke with other authors, other memoirists, other people, and, um, you know, I, I really wanted to communicate these experiences and, and to, to get people to understand what's happening, uh, to so many sort of sidelined and struggling kids across the country, um, and what's happening with families, what's happening with social mobility, why is it that so many young kids aren't doing as well as we would like them to do? Um, you know, questions around poverty and instability and all these things, like what are the actual factors that predict success in life? Um, and so, you know, I talked to other, yeah, like I said, other, other writers and, you know, one person said something that, uh, you know, basically the question for a memoir isn't uh, who am I, but who am I in this story? And for some reason that unlocked something in me, which was basically, you know, initially I thought, okay, I'm going to write this book as this sort of retrospective account, you know, sort of commenting on these stories from my past and giving my thoughts and reflections on them. And then I realized the most effective way to tell this story would actually be from the perspective of myself at that age. What do I remember? What do I, you know, what were my experiences like? What did I see? What did I hear? What did I smell? Just every sort of sensory feeling that I had to just like fully bring the reader along with me on this experience of what is it like to 
you know, uh, live in a foster home when you're seven years old and, um, you know, seeing your foster siblings come and go or like the uh, uncertainty of where you're going to live next. Um, you know, what is it like to see, you know, after living in those experiences to see your parents divorced or what is it like to, you know, be a teenager with a bunch of other, you know, reckless boys and, you know, vandalizing buildings and getting into trouble and getting into fights and, you know, what that does to someone and how early life experiences are, are directly connected to how we sort of think about ourselves later. And, you know, they felt like the most effective way would be to actually go back in time and remember that. And so, yeah, it was difficult. I mean, you know, to, to try to remember everything. I, I basically only told the stories which contained my most sort of vivid recollections and the most important stories. And, um, you know, I was listening to the music from that era, like as I was writing, you know, I'd listen to like the music from the 90s. I would, uh, you know, I would eat the food or at least buy the same snacks that I would eat. As, you know, I'd buy like the generic Pop-Tarts from Walmart and open the package and smell it and see if like any, you know, any memories would form, anything come to the surface. And it was, a, you know, surprisingly effective just going, you know, trying to do as much as I could to reimmerse myself into that period and those periods. So, you know, I'd be sleeping and then suddenly I'd bolt awake at like 3 a.m. and say, oh, like I hadn't thought about that in years and like rushed to my computer and tried to jot down everything that that had come to mind of, you know, some interaction I had with a friend or something that, um, you know, something that occurred between, I don't know, my uh, my family or what, what have you. So just all of these different stories um, that I was trying to sort of rekindle and talking to my friends, talking to my mom, my sister, my adoptive family. And ultimately, yeah, it ended up being pretty effective. And yeah, but it, it, it sucked. <laughs> like, of course, like the emotional part sucked too. I mean, you know, there was a period where, um, so I, I started writing those early, like the first half of the book was basically during the lockdown. And I remember uh, when I was writing it, I was taking naps in the middle of the day, which I usually don't take naps. You know, I'm not a nap person. But I was writing those first chapters. Um, in the afternoon, I would suddenly sleep for 20 or 30 minutes. And initially, I attributed it to, you know, oh, it's, you know, we're in the lockdown. There's a global pandemic. There's all this social unrest in the country. There's just so many things going on. And, you know, I'm just, you know, my body's just exhausted and I'm reacting to something like that. And then it wasn't until later that I connected the dots and was like, probably maybe those things contributed, but the main thing was probably just truly trying to relive the moments of my early life, the sort of most exhausting, distressing, upsetting memories. Um, and yeah, to some extent, I was surprised at how sort of fresh the feelings were that were attached to those early experiences that I hadn't thought about in so long. Um, and then trying to chart the outline of the basically, you know, having a sort of a narrative thread, a coherent thread throughout, because, you know, a memoir is, it's not an autobiography. It's not, um, it's not meant to detail every single thing that you've ever lived through or experienced. No one wants to read about the time I went to the dentist or, you know, whatever, like the boring mundane activities there, the, you know, I only tell the stories that might be interesting to the reader. Um, but it still all has to hang together into a coherent narrative such that, people understand, you know, cause and effect, this happened, then that happened. And why did that happen? And why, why am I telling you this? Like, why, why would I care about this? Um, I didn't want to bore the reader. And so it was a lot of deciding what to leave in and what to, you know, keep out. Yeah. I mean, and that's, I mean, you did a great job. That's where both versions of Rob, or I guess all the versions of Rob come into play, right? There's the Rob who's, who's writing 
the memoir and understands I'm going to, I'm going to leave this anecdote in, I'm going to remove this anecdote, or I'm going to leave that anecdote out, or I'm going to blend these anecdotes together because it is memoir and not, you know, factual autobiography in, in the sense of like, you know, every single moment needs to, needs to be strung together perfectly. But then there's also the individual character of Rob within each of those chapters or, or, or anecdotes or kind of, uh, you know, um, portions, portions of the book. You did a great job of, of yes, inhabiting the, the, the version of you that went through those experiences and had all of those sensory um, experiences, but it also did very much feel like this Rob that I'm talking to right now is the one who wrote those stories. Were you thinking that intentionally about it or was it like, hey, I'm just going to immerse and let that subconsciously happen? It was more the latter. Yeah, it was really just, um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to tell a story in a certain way. I just told the story in the way that felt natural and the way that felt honest. Um, you know, initially it was like, you know, the, the, I wrote the vomit draft, you know, like the kind of initial draft of just brain dump everything, everything that I could possibly re possibly remember or think of. And yeah, that first, you know, the first rough draft of the manuscript was kind of over bloated and contained a lot of sort of things that were maybe interesting to me, but wouldn't really be interesting to the reader. It was just, you know, some of it was my own ego of just like, well, I think this is a clever little paragraph and it's like, it, it adds nothing to the story and no one else is going to care. And so, you know, there was a lot of sort of back and forth with my editors and feedback from other writers um, to like really make it, uh, it was kind of a Darwinian process of like, you know, if, if more than one reader or editor that I respected said, this needs to go, then as painful as it was to cut something out, I, you know, I listened to them. Um, some of the things I, you know, I kept in, even if others didn't agree, because I thought it was important. But by and large, I did try to make it so that the book was, it communicated the message I wanted it to, it was honest, you know, every single thing that happened in the book, you know, really did happen. And it was, um, you know, the other thing was, I guess the, uh, I mean, what you just said about like, okay, who's, who's telling the story? Is it, you know, my, myself when I was a kid, or when I was a teenager, or when I was in my early 20s? Is it me now? And, you know, I, I did try to write it from the perspective of myself at that age as best I could. And I tried to sort of re, um, re-enter the perspective that I had um, at those ages and what I was thinking about, what my priorities were. Um, and yeah, I mean, I was just, you know, I guess the one thing that surprised me was just how much sort of, especially the teenage years and early 20 years was just the rage. I, I used to be such an angry person. Like I had actually, to some extent, I was... Um, you know, I was taken aback by it, which was like, I, I guess I kind of had the sense, like, I'm a, I'm a calmer person. Like, I just knew that already. Like, I'm just a calmer, more kind of even killed person now uh, at age 34 than I was when I was 24, when I was, especially when I was 18. But, you know, sort of remembering who was around me, the events, what I was feeling it was just this sort of throbbing, simmering, relentless anger. And it would just come out at like very... Uh, inconvenient times. And I mean, I think there are like, I don't know, seven or eight fights in the book, but you know, there were probably seven or eight others that I could have added that I just didn't because it would have, it wouldn't add anything to the story. It was just like, I got into a lot of dumb altercations because I had an ego or because I had a chip on my shoulder or because, you know, I was, I had this fear, especially as a teenager that people would think I was weak 
you know, they would think like, oh, this, you know, this kid, he's, you know, I, and I don't know where, like, it was, it was all in my own head, you know, like, oh, I didn't have a family, no one cared about me, and I have to prove to the world that I'm worth something. So anytime anyone challenges me or crosses my path, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna have to show them that I'm actually not weak, I am strong. Uh, and it would come out in, you know, that sort of dumb, teenage male violent way. Um, and then, yeah, so then when I was shaping the book, it was like, uh, you know, this process of, you know, being honest with those parts of myself. And th there's also this question of like, George Orwell has this famous quote about how um, any, any man who gives a good account of himself is probably lying, since any life when viewed from the inside is seen as a series of defeats. And basically, he's like, you know, you have to be very skeptical whenever someone tells you about their life, because we naturally have this bias in our favor. You know, we always want to view ourselves as like the good person, the hero of the story, the person who is in the right. Um, and I tried to be honest in that, like, you know, tell the tell this tell the stories, tell the uh, the moments and the memories where I didn't always come out looking so good. Yeah, I mean, you did a really good job at that where it's clear you're the protagonist, but it like you and and you also I mean, there's there's multiple moments where you just kind of let the reader experience um, the poor decisions that you made or the poor circumstances that you were in or or kind of whatever it was. And you don't sometimes you you, you speak about it and, and kind of comment from now, but then other times you just let it happen and kind of keep it moving into the next section or next paragraph or even like next chapter, which I particularly enjoyed because it's a really hard thing to do to tell your own story and be as truthful as you can. Um, you can't be objective about it, obviously you can, but you can be, um, you know, the best version of subjective as you, as you can be, which it, obviously having not, I don't know you that well, but, but uh, having followed and listened, it seemed like you, you kind of got captured. It's not like I, there were things that I was surprised at in the book, but there weren't things I'm like, wow, that doesn't seem like Rob. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it was kind of like, there were, there was enough surprise, but then there was also just the like, oh yeah, that, that makes sense that he would be working, working through that at that time, you know, kind of in that way. Um, were you, did you start with any I've kind of two, uh, uh, granular process questions that I want to come back to, to the emotional one at the kind of your surprise at anger. Um, so first question, did you start with any sort of outline or journal entries or anything like that? Or did you just start the vomit draft and just go? So I had like a very rough chapter outline, okay. um, as far as like, you know, okay. So there's this, you know, born into poverty in LA and then there's the foster homes and this, that. And so I had like a, but it ended up changing and evolving and shifting over time. But I had like a very rough, uh, I think initially I had 10 chapters in mind and it ended up being 12 and I kind of made some chapters shorter and I added another chapter. So it kind of evolved and moved around, but ultimately like the basic structure was there. Um, but Did then, you find this? Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, go ahead. Oh, well, no, it just, it, then it became, yeah, then it was like, okay, it, the, I guess it wasn't like the vomit draft of like the whole book I'm going to vomit. It was more chapters where like, okay, here's the chapter that I want to focus on. I'm going to write, you know, vomit draft, go cover this period. You know, and I had like rough targets in mind for how long I wanted it to be. And, um, you know, I just told the story until it seemed like uh, it exhausted itself and then moved on to the next phase and the next phase. And then, yeah, I started to get feedback and, and, um, you know, reviewing each chapter and making sure that it was all, um, you know, it all cohered in and it all made sense. And 
Uh, but yeah, it was, you know, loose structure, but it was more like, I don't think, stru I think structure is overrated, at least for, for this kind of project, maybe, maybe for others, you know, but you know, it's funny, I've talked to fiction writers too. I mean, it didn't really work in this case, but I've heard, I've heard fiction writers who will say things like, um, you know, I'll, I'll be writing and then I'll come up with something interesting. And then I have to go back and change this because it's foreshadowing this other thing and that, you know, so, but, but I think for memoir, you know, structure can help. Um, if you're writing about your life, it sort of gives you something to frame the story around. But really the important thing, I think, is to just start writing because I think we we can get too caught up on preparing and not enough on on just doing, on just getting it down. And the writing was the hard part, honestly. I mean, the writing was that, you know, you can spend all day sort of planning things out, but what really matters is actually executing. Yeah. Um, did you jump around at all or did you do it all in order? Mostly in order. Um, vomit draft was in order. You know, yeah. I vomit draft chapter one and chapter two and so on and so on. But then as far as editing, I would, you know, I'd, I'd edit on, you know, I'd spend a little time on chapter three or then jump ahead to chapter five. But then, you know, and so, yeah, I mean, there were, yeah, there were parts of the book where I did think it was important, actually, to foreshadow certain things later. Um, because, you know, otherwise it wouldn't make sense if something just suddenly came out of nowhere. Um even though like for me it did i mean that's the weird thing is like you know there were there were parts of, like you know in the middle of the book our ho uh our home is foreclosed um you know my mom's partner shelly gets uh she gets shot and there's you know there's all of this drama that comes but they receive this insurance windfall and we buy houses and then the house is foreclosed and it came out of nowhere even i mean i remember my editor was like what the hell like this and and she was kind of like you know you need to give the reader some heads up and i was like when I was 16, I didn't get a heads up. <laughs> like no one told me this was going to happen. That's just life. Shit happens, you know? Um, but then I started to think and, you know, okay, so was there anything in Shelley's character or her habits or something that may give the reader some inkling that like she would be the kind of person to make some kind of risky real estate investments? And I thought back, you know, we'd play, we'd play board games. We would play um, Monopoly. And she was always the one to like basically hold properties and not cash. And she was, she did enjoy going to casinos and gambling money. And she was a bit more reckless and risky in terms of how she handled finances compared with my mom. And so, you know, I did put those stories in later, realizing like that may help the reader to contextualize and understand, even if I, as a teenager, didn't really connect those dots. Um, I did later sort of understand this. And so I put those in just to sort of help the reader to understand um, which is like, you know, maybe that's just a more fair way to do things because otherwise, yeah, it just seems like weird things happening in the book without any through line or any understanding. And so in a weird way for memoir, you do have to, to some extent, use the tools of storytelling and fiction just to ensure that the reader can follow and track things and to feel like the story makes sense. Totally. I'm working on a, on a personal essay memoir style project right now. And <clears throat> I was chuckling to myself as you were like, the writing is the hard part is an old Hemingway quote, right? Like writing's mm -hmm. easy. All you gotta do is sit at a typewriter and bleed. <laughs> but like, I've got a full outline. Like I, I know, I know, but it's like to actually go in and write each chapter, um, you know, and there's obviously some that are more, are, are more traumatic than others in, in terms of like emotionally going there, relationally going there, whatever, what have you. And then there's others that are just like, man, that's going to be a fucking slog to just write that chapter because there's just, it's dense or it, you know, it's whatever, but it's got to get written and it's just hard to, to actually do. And back to the naps that you were taking, like, I'm sure 
I'm sure, obviously, a lot of it was emotional because you were processing things, but it's also physical too. Like writing takes work and you're working your brain and your body is outputting all of this, not not just your mind, not just your heart and soul and all that stuff. It's like the whole thing. So the exhaustion makes sense. Um, I want to be respectful of your time because I, I know it's late there and we got how much more time do you have? I mean, we can go for another 15 or 20. Okay, cool. Um, so a couple more tactical questions about the about the writing, and then I want to ask some other military things. So um, how did you determine uh, big literary and, and kind of memoir po- poetry community corner that I'm a, a part of here um, in, in the veteran space? So these questions are, and answers are valuable. How did you decide when you were going to be stubborn and say, I'm going to keep that thing um, and then when, when did you kind of use that Darwinian approach to, to allow the Darwinian process to, to work? And when did you decide, nope, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep this one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so as far as like when to know, when to let something go, I did use this, um, you know, basically the, the rule of thumb I used was like, because we all have our idiosyncrasies, we kind of, you know, people can kind of agree on, like, people are very good at spotting bad writing. But there is a lot of disagreement as far as what good writing looks like. Um, and so if something sucks, it's usually, usually universally panned. But if something is good, you will get mixed opinions sometimes. And so if one person I respected said, hey, I'm not sure this makes sense here. But then another person said, oh, I really, you know, I did get this. There were some stories where literally one, like literally a Pulitzer Prize winning author would say that was my favorite story. But then another highly accomplished author would say, this doesn't make sense here. I don't get why this is here. And so like, what are you supposed to do when you literally get conflicting advice on the, and in those cases, I ended up just keeping it um, almost every time, or I think every time. But if two people said, hey, this doesn't make sense here, or I don't know why you kept this here, or, you know, they flag something, um, then I would I would let it go because it's like two people caught something that if it didn't didn't make sense to two people, then it's probably not going to make sense to most people. Um, then for what to let go, um, or no, 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 rather, rather what to retain when you're getting conflicting advice. I mean, some of it was just because I knew, you know, like what the whole story looked like. And I knew what the end was. And I knew that certain vignettes or stories, you know, within a chapter uh, held the story together long enough so that if the, you know, hopefully the reader will remember it so that by the time they get to the end, it'll all make sense. Um, So part of it was just kind of the foreshadowing elements of maybe the person reading it, you know, they've only read this chapter, they haven't read the full manuscript. And so they don't understand and so in those cases, I, I trusted my instincts. Uh, in other cases, you know, it was just, um, yeah, it's so, some of it is hard to just explicitly verbalize where like, I just had this instinctive, intuitive feeling that this is an important part of the story. And if, you know, if it, I guess, if it made me look good and someone said, this doesn't make sense, often I would let it go because I knew that was my ego. But if it made me look bad, um, often I would keep it in because it just felt more honest mm. because I, I was very concerned with that about like, people are going to think that I'm, you know, trying to write this fluff book about myself and how great I am. And you know, what's funny, Carrie is like, I, there were, there were like several stories where I, I did like good things and I didn't put them in the book because I was, I, people are going to like doubt it or think that I'm, you know, there was a story where I saved a girl from drowning and I didn't put it in the book because it's, it just felt like too much patting myself on the back. Um, I told the story where I drowned in one of the foster homes, nearly drowned. That was, that was, that was yeah. I, I yeah. my jaw was on the floor. Yeah. 
and I tell that story. And and then a couple of years later, I was at my my little sister's friend had a birthday party at her house, and um, one of the other little girl and I was there, and you know we're all around the birthday cake, and one of the other little girls you know, we didn't, you know, we, we eventually noticed she was missing, like, oh, where did this girl go? And, you know, they had a big backyard and they had this, you know, indoor swimming pool. And I looked in the distance and I could hear like some splashing. And I was like, oh, that's, you know, she's drowning. Like I knew what drowning looked like because I had drowned. Like I knew what that was. And I immediately ran over there and grabbed her and pulled her out. And I was like, you know, I, initially I wrote this and I'm like, and I'm like, you know, it's, a, it happened and it's nice. And, um, you know, uh, I can connect it to this other story about like, I knew she was drowning because I had drowned. So there is like a, you know, it's part of the story, but it doesn't really add anything other than, hey, Rob did something nice. And so I ended up just throwing it out. Um, yeah. Maybe I'll end up posting, you know, like a series of these, um, you know, the, what, what was left on the cutting room floor on my Substack or something. Yeah. But, um, you know, for for what to keep it, a lot of it was just sort of gut level, instinctive, intuitive, and, and, um, whether it contributed to the overall story at the, you know, as, as a whole. And, uh, you know, did it make me look bad? Did it make me look good? And all of those factors sort of played a role in, in what to keep and what to leave out. Yeah. I mean, thanks, thanks for sharing that and being vulnerable there. Cause I think there's, that's, that, that's a great answer and a helpful answer. And, and it's one that I think maybe, maybe some people that are working on a project, whether it's memoir or fiction or, or nonfiction or whatever might, might not like it. But at the end of the day, if you're going to put yourself out there and try to accomplish um, a deliverable like this, whether it's artistic or entrepreneurial or even just academic, like you're going to have to make some of those gut level decisions yourself. And you have to trust that the right version of you is doing this project right now. And you have to have that kind of confidence to move forward. Um, and I think the guardrails that you've provided for yourself will be helpful templates for people to, for people to think about as they, as they navigate their own projects. Hmm. Um, Okay, so there, there's one interesting kind of military or, or, or portion, a couple of quotes from the military section that I, I'd like to wrap up um, chatting just a little bit about. So I'm, I'm going to pull a couple of quotes here. Bear with me, both you and, and the listener. Um, <clears throat> you said here that um, I learned that this is from the book. I learned that so much of success depends not on what people do, but what they don't do. It's about avoiding rash and reckless actions that will land us in trouble. The military presses the fast forward button on the worst, most aggressive and impulsive years of a young man's life. The time when a guy is most likely to do something catastrophically stupid. Then towards the end, uh, towards the end, not the very end, but towards the end of the military section, when you were stationed in Germany, you said, I realized that my 22 year old self was living a life that my 17 year old self had chosen. Um, and it kind of those two, it, it's, it's definitely a, a truism. Like as I wrote that, I read, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, this is so true. Like the, the, just the, the law of attrition is just a very helpful way to, to make decisions, right? Like being a little bit more small C conservative with the decisions that you're not making will, will help you, um, make mm -hmm. better decisions in the future. And then this notion, this very kind of meta thing of, 22-year-old Rob was living a life that 17-year-old Rob chose. And I don't know how old you are now, but that version of Rob is writing about that. It's kind of like this. Can you talk about like what it was like for you to have that um, sort of um, self-awareness of those things and how you've taken that post-military into um, into your grad work, into your papers? And, and, um, and I'd love to kind of just wrap up 
you're, you're teaching yeah. and how you're working with Peterson Academy and, um, and putting your work out there um, publicly for, for people to consume. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that was an important lesson for me because, you know, it's a lot of attention is paid to, you know, here are the things that you need to do to be successful, but no one ever says like, here are the things you shouldn't do to like avoid drastic failure. And, you know, a lot of those things are very basic, um, you know, like don't drink and drive or don't, um, you know, uh, seek physical altercations with strangers in public. Don't, don't, you know, do hard drugs. Don't do, you know, there are a lot of things like that. Um, you know, be careful who you enter relationships with. Maybe don't, you know, instead of, you know, sleeping with that person, maybe don't sleep with that person. You know, so many things like that where you could just sort of avoid blowing your life up. And yeah, the military, I mean, it was, it's, it was so suffocating, you know, the first couple of, well, like the first year mostly, but it was like, you know, basic training and tech school and then living in the dorms on base. And, you know, it was just like, you know, relative to the, to the, the extremely high levels of freedom I had before, it was like, it felt like I couldn't do anything at all. And it was mind numbing and I hated it at the time. But then, you know, in hindsight, it was the right call for like, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old to just like not be able to do all of the things that I wanted to do at all hours of the day. And I mean, even something like drinking, you know, this is something that I, I kind of have changed my mind about, you know, there was that thing about, you know, in the military, I remember like, oh, you can enlist when you're 18, but you can't drink until you're 21. And I'm like, that's not the worst, honestly, you know, like to, you know, if you give an 18 year old access to alcohol, especially, you know, they're away from, I mean, you see it on college campuses, right? Like you see kids with, you know, getting, getting intoxicated and making decisions that they regret later, whether it's, you know, sex or whether it's, you know, like neglecting their homework or their studies or their personal lives or their relationships. Like it's, you know, alcohol is actually, you know, it's fun and it's exciting, but you, it can take over your life. I mean, I learned that lesson. And then later, um, yeah, by the time I was 22 into my second enlistment in Germany and, you know, had done a couple of deployments and I was just thinking, you know, it was like, I joined the military, not because it was the right decision, but because I was, you know, I knew it was better than the one that it was, it was better than the alternative, right? Like it was better than remaining in Red Bluff and staying on that path. But, um, you know, trying to, at that point, it was less about like trying to get away from my past and actually starting to think more about like building and constructing a good future for myself. Whereas up until that point, I mean, really from, you know, childhood through age 22, I was living like day to day or week to week, paycheck to paycheck, you know, moment to moment of just what's the next exciting thing? What's the next sort of short term goal that I had or, you know, and, and then, yeah, I think, you know, who knows what that, that specific age, a lot changes, right? You're sort of past the, you know, what I, I, I write about the young male syndrome in the book, you sort of get past those years, you get into, um, you know, your frontal lobes develop, you have a little bit more maturity and breadth of perspective at 20, most guys at 22 versus when they're 18. Um, and so, yeah, I started to actually be a bit more introspective and reflective and actually sort of realize like, oh, you know, what do I want for my life? What do I want for my future? And, you know, is this what I always want to do? And then I started, you know, I did this when I was 17 too. I mean, it's funny, I guess I've always kind of done this to some extent. I, I do it even now, which I can get into in a second. But the, the what I'm describing here is when I was 17, I remember one reason I joined the military was because I, so I worked at a restaurant as a dishwasher and a busboy. And then later I got a job as a bag boy at a grocery store. And one reason I 
knew I didn't want to stay in Red Bluff and I wanted to get out and you know, somehow was I looked at my older coworkers and I thought, is that who I want to be um, later in life? You know, I'd see my my coworkers, you know, these guys in their mid late twenties, um, you know, working in the same job, you know, making a you know minimum wage or not much more than that, and you know, it was, it was weird. Like at the time, you know, at first we kind of, kind of thought they were cool. Like they'd buy beer for me and my friends or hook us up with weed or, you know, they were like, but then, you know, I did later, by the time I got to my senior year of high school, I was like, it is weird that like some like 27 year old guy, like is buying us beer and like asking us to hang out at like high school parties. (laughs) Like, I don't want to be that guy. There's something weird about that. I don't, you know, that's not what I see myself doing in 10 years. And then in the military, I had that same kind of pattern of thought of, you know, I'd look at the older NCOs or senior NCOs or, you know, retirees. And I think like, you know, is that, is this what I want to do for 20 years? Do I want to retire in this career? And when I realized the answer was no, then I really started to think seriously about what to do next. And then, yeah, now, you know, when I was in grad school during my PhD, I was like, do I really want to be a professor considering everything that's happening in higher ed right now? Not really. And then started to build this alternate sort of career path for myself. And so I think this is kind of a useful heuristic that people can have this sort of in their mental toolkit is just if you're on a path and you're uncertain about whether you want to remain on it, look at the people who are on the same path as you, but five years down the road, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road and think, okay, is that where I want to be in five years or 10 years and so on? And if the answer is no, then, you know, now is the best time to start reconsidering and, you know, figuring out what other trajectories and other options and opportunities you might have. Yeah. And yeah, we, yeah, you got exactly where I was hoping, where I was hoping you would go. And the only thing I would add for, for the listener is that that does not mean that the decisions you made and the experiences that you had were the wrong ones over time. It just means that it's not the same path that you're going to stay on. So many military veterans will transition out or won't transition out because they're like, man, I'm here. I did eight years. I did 10. I got to stay because Here's all the reasons why that's a bad idea instead of saying, well, actually, eight years is a really great foundation um, for me to move on to the next thing. And then, oh, I've got my PhD and I'm not going to use it in the sense of like, you know, being a professor at this or another institution. But that does not mean that you a obviously you learned things getting a PhD, but you also developed experiences and got reps at things that will propel you into the next thing. So it's this weird give and take between like attrition and, you know, subtraction and addition and you know, again, negotiating your way through through the world and navigating your experiences, not not in this binary sense of like always right and or always right and always wrong, but like, oh, how do I how do I kind of teeter totter between these things and and figure out like what's what's the center of gravity here instead of like the absolute kind of thing that I I have to be doing. I don't know if that makes sense, or right? Not. You know, it does. Yeah, about like not essentially not falling prey to the sunk cost fallacy, right? Of like, I mean, I had this. You know, if you spent X number of years in the military and like, oh, I'm this, you know, every year that I'm in, I'm closer to retirement. So you might as well just keep going. And it's like, well, are you happy? You know, like, are you, what are you going to do when you retire? You know, are you going to be able to, like, is, is that going to be a better time to find an alternate career than in the position you're in now? And I read about this in the book about how, you know, when I first started thinking about using the GI Bill and going to college and doing something else, I had this conversation with my first supervisor and, he basically said, like, no, I'm not going to, you know, I, of course I'm going to stay in. He's like, you know, if you get out now and you go to college, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd be, you know, so much older than my peers. And, you know, it's like it's a waste of time, essentially. Right. Like you're you're basically starting so much further ahead in your life that it's like you're basically, you know, at a, at a huge disadvantage. And I was like, you know, is that really true, though? Because the time is going to pass anyway. 
right? Like if you're unhappy, like why would you stay in something and just keep going with it just because you've spent X number of years in already? And, you know, so I've, I guess it, to some extent, yeah, it's the same thing, right? I have this conversation with postdocs and PhD students about like, oh, you know, I spent five years or whatever getting a PhD and like I worked my whole life. And like I've, I've always wanted to be a professor and, you know, I guess I'm just going to go for it even if, you know, even if I'm not happy anymore, even if this isn't giving me the kind of meaning and fulfillment I expect it. It's just, you've always been on this track and you just sort of stay with the status quo. And no, I just think, yeah, the way you put it was, was correct to just start thinking, um, you know, you don't always have to stay on the track you're on just because you've invested so much time in it. If, if you think that you may be happy doing something else, you should go for it. In most cases, I think you should go for it. Yeah, I agree. And and that, that piece of trusting, trusting the experiences that you had, I think is, is one that our community particularly struggles with because, um, because we think it makes us, you know, whether if you're a special operator, right, like a lot of those guys will come out and they're like, well, that's who I am. You know, that that's what I did. So I can only be a trigger puller on the on the outside. It's like, oh, man, that sets you up for something else. What are you interested in? What do you love? What do you want to do? What do you where do you want to take it? You know, flight line guys like you and me, um, you know, it's a little bit different. like I, <clears throat> I was not mechanically or electrically inclined at all. Uh, but I look back on those four years as a weapons troop on F-15s being like, <laughs> best job I ever had. Like, I love it. You know, it's like, it's great. Like what a great foundation. Cause it really stretched me in ways that, um, that I otherwise wouldn't have been stretched if I would have gone to study, you know, writing and filmmaking and all those things without that, um, kind of blip of, of an interruption. Um, okay. So before I get to our, the open-ended question that I asked to end each episode, um, what are you working on right now? Well, obviously we'll, we'll link out in the show notes, um, to your Substack and, um, to Amazon or wherever you want us to, to order the book from, um, highly encourage everybody to do that, but where do you want to drive traffic? What are you working on right now? Anything you want to share about the immediate future? Uh, yeah, I mean, so, you know, I, I'm still writing, uh, multiple times a week on, on my Substack newsletter. Um, you know, I have some lectures, so Peterson Academy, uh, I filmed some lectures for them, uh, earlier last year, and I think they're going to launch, I want to say February, oh, cool. um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, I, I don't think it's been fully confirmed, but I, I did see them sort of posting somewhere about this. Um, so that'll launch, you know, sometime early this year, uh, Peterson Academy, my lectures, I did a course called the psychology of social status. I did a series of six uh, 90 minute lectures. And so you'll be able to access those. It was, you know, it was filmed. It was very professionally done. There was an in-studio audience. So I did Q and A with the students and the whole thing was filmed and I think it, it turned out beautifully. Um, so that'll be out soon. Um, and yeah, my book will be out and yeah, otherwise, yeah, I mean, I'm just, uh, writing, writing has been my main thing. It's, you know, something that I've, I've, I've been enjoying a lot is just communicating ideas on Substack and, and on Twitter. So yeah, yeah, any, any of those, uh, you know, any, anywhere you want to find me, you can, those, those are the places to go. Yes. Well, not, not only will we, uh, link it out, but you will be <clears throat> bombarded with multiple notifications notifications from me across all of those platforms multiple times a day the the week that this episode goes live as as we put content out um to to share um uh, so yep we'll, we'll link all that stuff out um okay so to end each episode i ask an open-ended question um what's on your heart and what's on your mind for our community right now could be a piece of advice something you want to get off your chest something you want to reiterate from what we've already talked about today but rob what's on your heart what's on your mind yeah, this is uh, what's in my heart, what's in my mind. I mean, yeah, I would say that. I mean, it's something we've 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 sort of touched on already, which is um, 
you know, basically be wary of getting stuck in any kind of rut, um, whether it's, you know, sort of in your career, whether it's in your um, relationships, any of those things, right? Like, you know, make sure that your priorities are right and you're doing the thing that actually satisfies you and fulfills you. I mean, I'm seeing a lot of this with, uh, yeah, guys who are staying, who, who are re-enlisting, not because it makes them happy or because they feel like it's giving them meaning or even, you know, I, I get like the guys who are doing it for, if they have a family, financial reasons, you know, that I totally get, but just the guys who are doing it out of, out of some sense of like, yeah, like we've been talking about, there are options and opportunities. You know, I, I write this in the book somewhere about how, you know, the Air Force, the military, it asks a lot from you, but you can get a lot back in return. I mean, it gives you all of these benefits, you know, do your best to, to, to capitalize on those and you can get far. I mean, the military experience is um, extremely valuable, I think. Um, it's something that, that, yeah, I continue to draw upon and think about and I'm grateful for. So, yeah, yeah, I guess just um, use those experiences and use the resources they give you. And, uh, yeah, don't, don't overlook it. I mean, I think a lot of guys just take it for granted that, you know, you have the GI Bill, you have these things, and, you know, you don't really fully dwell on all of the options that you have before you, like someone like me, I mean, I talk about this in the book too, about how like going to a college like Yale was, you know, basically, you know, might as well have been impossible. might as well have been trying to go to the moon for all I knew, but you know, the, the GI bill was there. There were people around, there were other vets, even if they weren't on the education center, don't limit yourself either, I guess would be the other thing is like a lot of vets think, Oh, I want to go to college. We'll just go to the education center and whatever information they give you. And that's just the, you know, might as well be the word of God. And it's, that's not the case. There are a lot of vets online, a lot of people who want to help. There are a lot of programs and organizations and so many things. So, you know, do your research, do your homework, and don't just sort of stick to the narrow confines of the base or the education center or the sort of environment immediately around you. There's a huge support system out there for vets who want to do, um, you know, do great things in their lives. Yeah. Generate, generate, the most and best options you can and, and make your own decisions. Well yeah. said. Rob Henderson, sincerely appreciate your time. Good to see you again. Hopefully it's not the last time we do this. Um, appreciate you uh, sharing your time and your words with us. Thank you, Carrie. Appreciate it. We'll see you, man. 